Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Autonomia, the show where we bring ideas from the libertarian left to everyday people and foster conversation on what we believe in hopes of proving that we all have far more in common than we are trained to believe. My name is Hayward, and I am your host. As always, our intro and outro music come from a song called A Bigger Cage is Still a Prison by System Failure. If you'd like to look up this song, the band spells system, C-I-S-T-E-M, for political reasons. There's nothing I want more than to sleep under the night sky. Hear the animals as they go about their lives. Feel the fire warm my body, feel the mud under my toes. But tonight, this cell keeps me in Well, looks like today is going to be a fairly happy day for me. My phone screen has finally come in from online because I've finally been able to afford purchasing one. And what that means is I've been able to retrieve some of the data from my iPhone that got folded in half during the pretty nightmarish car accident I had close to two and a half months ago. I am still dealing with a lot of pain as a result of it. My hip likes to pop out of its socket and my shoulder is uh, is nearly constant pain. But we're moving forward. My father has had uh, all of his medical issues partially resolved and is actually back home now. So I no longer have to be pulling constant hours over there trying to clean up his house for his return and sell things like crazy in an attempt to pay for his medical care. So, I might actually get a chance to breathe and do one of the things that I enjoy most, talking. Anyway, we're going to go ahead now and roll the episode that was recorded quite a long time ago now, uh, focusing on the uprisings that were happening all over the country, because I thought it was a very important topic, especially considering even now, they're still going on in certain parts of the country. Hope you find that interesting, entertaining, and uh, maybe even like it. Thanks for listening. From the window, I hear the aching groaning wind. It forces its way through the cracks onto my skin. I long to climb out, to be swept up in its rise. But I can't break through the bars that keep me in There's nothing I want more Than to sleep under the night sky Hear the animals as they go about their lives Feel the fire warm my body Feel the mud under my toes But tonight this cell keeps me in Hello, folks, and thank you so much for tuning in. A whole lot's been happening lately, and we've actually been uh, sort of holding off on a new episode simply because so much is happening all the time, and it seemed imprudent to just 
jump in in the middle of something and say, hey, we're going to have all this analysis and ideas when so much more might unfold. So we wanted to give a little bit of a break to approach this topic. But unless you've been living under a rock or something else, you probably have noticed the uprising that has happened and in some places is still happening all over the country. We've seen police stations burn down. We've seen autonomous zones. We've seen a huge amount of concessions and police reforms that would have never been on the table a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago. And suddenly so much has changed. And that does beg the question, why so much has changed? And what in our tactics and movements has changed to garner such immense concessions so quickly? The wind you hear in the background is because we're at our monthly giveaway again, and I've managed to track down our dear old friend Doc, who knows a whole bunch about history and uh, can really help us explore this topic. And the topic is rioting, civil unrest, or what you might call violent protesting, and what history it has and what types of gains can be achieved from it. We'll also contrast civil unrest, violent tactics, diversity of tactics with the purely non-violent, purely non-confrontational tactics that the system and media figures always tell us is the only way to change things and is the only way that is legitimate and the only way that works. So uh, we're going to say hi to Doc again. Happy to have him here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, we're, we're very happy to have you here. So defunding the police is something that we've heard in radical circles for quite some time. The word autonomous zone is something we've heard in radical circles for quite some time. I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that's the, a playoff of the AutoZone logo that says autonomous zone with an exploding police car in the background. <laughs> uh, that's a phrase that we don't typically hear until about a couple months ago. We also don't see mass concessions from police departments all over the country, including the city of Milwaukee, among others, talking about dismantling their police departments. And people don't really appreciate quite how huge that is. Like it or not, there are certain lessons that are very hard to ignore here. Why are all of these things suddenly under the ta- on the table when there have been calls for reform, there have been calls for change, and there have been peaceful protests demanding things like this for generations? You know, Why do you think all of a sudden that that's in the mainstream dialogue? Uh, it's hard to argue with a burned down police de- district or precinct rather in Minneapolis, I would say. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's still there. It's still burned to the ground, so... I've often said that if your protests can be ignored, they will be ignored. And it's quite hard to ignore your city on fire. You know, when Ferguson happened, we had tons of people saying as well, oh, well, the violent people are co-opting this movement. The violent people are are distracting from the message and nothing's going to happen because of the violent people. But after the Ferguson rebellion, we saw police departments all over the country getting body cameras. We saw police departments all over the country getting civilian review boards to to uh, observe and, and in some cases actually enforce action upon their conduct. And that was unheard of before Ferguson and a bunch of other cities were burned by rioters that were sick of dealing with this stuff. You know, we all know this MLK quote that a riot is a language of the unheard. There's also a JFK quote that says those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And that's sort of what we're seeing right now, because, you know, you and I are are in a generation where where we're sort of new to this whole struggle that's been going on for centuries. But there have been people waging this debate for a long time saying, hey, what's going to happen? How can we make change better? Well, if we just peacefully protest, perhaps this system 
will suddenly become merciful and be moved by our plight. And unfortunately, that's not whatever seems to happen. And, you, and, you know, Doc, knowing all the stuff he knows about the labor movement, can certainly get into a lot of that. Because how do you think we had the eight-hour workday? Do you think we just said to the, the, work, to the uh, factory owners and the police that were literally founded in the North to back them up, hey, we're suffering, could you please be nice to us? And they suddenly said, oh, you're people? We had no idea. Yeah, we thought you were a factory. Yeah, machine. yeah. That's <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> Sorry about that. We My th- bad. <laughs> we thought you were livestock. Are you asking us to treat you well? Absolutely, no problem. Eight-hour workday, minimum wage, women's suffrage. You can all have it. You can tell by our sarcasm. That's not how it happened. You know, no, there were instances not. where <laughs> the police were machine gunning people that were striking. The 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 two instances of aerial bombardment in this country on c- civilians bef- in the early 20th century were the Battle of Blair Mountain, dropping bombs on striking workers who were defending their their zone, and uh, the other one was was Black Tulsa, <laughs> that also got firebombed to the ground. You know, th- these these big civil upheavals seem to scare the government into actually getting off of its butt and at least giving the appearance of doing something about the public good. Right. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, the, the Vietnam War uh, war was ended by lots of peaceful protests swaying gov- uh, you know, government and, and public opinion. And other people say, no, it was mass uprisings all over the country. It was people in Vietnam fragging their officers right. and refusing was, to I just, serve. I was just about to say, it's hard to conduct a war when, like, your colonels and your lieutenants and majors just can't sleep at night. Yeah. The risk that they'll wake up and find a grenade under their pillow. There yeah. was so much internal sabotage that it made the war almost impossible to fight. But we see that all throughout history. You know, the, the credit given for these big gains is always given to the folks who were the least threatening to the state. You know, we, uh, I'm not about to sit here and insult Martin Luther King. However, we only hear about him in schools because he was part of a massively diverse movement and a set of diverse tactics that mutually reinforced each other and hit the system in every direction it could. But we only hear about Martin Luther King because if we only use his tactics, we'll have what we have now where nothing gets done and the system allows you to protest because there's no threat from your protests. And it allows the the exact white moderates that MLK warned about to go out into the streets, hold their signs, post on Instagram, and then go to Starbucks later and, and seem like they've, they've done a good thing right. when nothing has actually happened. So that brings us back to the present day. Do we honestly think that the, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department would, would be <laughs> on the chopping block if they hadn't burned a huge chunk of the city down and, and went to open warfare against the police? Do you think the government would consider that? No, of course not. <laughs> like, like Minneapolis PD have a long history because that whole region of the country used to be all factories all over the place. And so Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Chicago PD have a long, long, long history of breaking up strikes. And what they would always do is, uh, this is what happened at Haymarket too. Haymarket's, Haymarket riots started out as a strike. It was workers pushing for an eight-hour day, a thing that a lot of people listening to this take for granted now. Yeah, because it's always been that way. Because it's always been that way. Right. Right. You've always had, you've never had to work 16 hours and send your five-year-old to a fucking factory. Right. You know, children never lost their fingers and worse in machines because, you know, child labor was never a a thing. It's always been like this. Yeah. Uh, It's always been fine. But but because it hasn't always been fine, uh, there was a real push in Chicago to have an eight-hour workday so that people who worked for their money could have a decent kind of life 
not maybe not exactly as rich as their bosses who didn't have to work for their money but at least something uh, at least literally something right right so they held a strike and they were pushing for an eight-hour day and there's a man there named by the name of august spies who was a german immigrant and a labor organizer and so on he had the newspaper too didn't he yes he did yeah uh and so he went over there and he was giving a speech and for whatever reason the chicago pd were like nope okay that's it we're done we're not letting this guy talk it's fine everybody go home so and then, so police in this case working against the people that they allegedly protect to enforce something they were protecting and serving the bosses just like they always do right you um, know their literal purpose that you aren't told in school right 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 uh so they they come in they're like we're not having this conversation you're not listening to this guy speak everybody go home it's it's over go home would you say that was his freedom of speech being violated by government officials yes but see the government <laughs> also gives him the right to freedom of speech it's in this thing called the constitution every cop swears an oath to uh but cops are the ones who enforce that so they can just lift that at any time and there's nothing you can do about it uh but the people there were like wait a minute i don't really want to go home yeah uh, so we're not gonna go anywhere and uh fuck you how about that maybe then, <laughs> maybe this fight is something that we're actually willing to to make sacrifices for because we're tired of starving right this is better than working 16 hours in a factory i'll fight a cop i don't you know yeah and so the cops were like seriously go home but the people were like no seriously fuck you and so the cops shot a couple people and as you can imagine nothing is better for community relations when you're a cop than murdering a civilian uh so the people came back the next day and they were listening to August Spies and a whole bunch of other labor organizers. I think Lucy Parsons was there, a whole bunch of people. And uh, the crowd got extremely riled up. And so a like column of police came and advanced on the crowd. And to this day, nobody knows how, but an explosion or the, a, a loud boom noise went off that somebody thought was a bomb. And so the police just opened fire and murdered a whole bunch of people. Uh, the police who murdered a whole bunch of people were not arrested or charged with any sort of crime. But the people who were speaking at this were all later hanged. Yeah, August Spee is kind of, yeah, the guy that uh, was strangled to death with a rope. Yes. For, you know, reasons. Because reasons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'll notice throughout the course of this discussion, dear listener, that uh, Doc and I have certain opinions about the police, and those might seem strange to you. Uh, they might seem a whole lot less strange if you were more aware of the history and continuous use of the police as the direct repressive arm of the state. This is a great time for me to plug someone else's podcast. Um, Robert Evans does a podcast called Behind the Bastards. Fantastic podcast, very well detailed, very well researched. And he's doing a mini-series right now called Behind the Police. Right now, at the time of this recording, there are four episodes out there. And I dare any one of you that is very supportive of the police to listen to it and tell me, feel free to message the page or anything, if you knew even a third of the things that this guy is talking about. Because if you were really aware of what the police were founded to do, did throughout most of their history, and continue in large degree to do, the, the back the blue position becomes a lot harder to uphold unless you don't care about freedom, which is a position you're allowed to have. It's not my position. It's not Doc's position. I mean, neither neither of us are supportive of people whose direct role is to cut down on freedom and resist any sort of social change with violence if necessary. So yeah, we have a certain opinion about the police, and that, and that will come out throughout this, and perhaps maybe an episode in the future will be more elaborate on our objections and critiques of police and policing itself. So I, I uh... <laughs> 
I wanted to tell a uh, story that goes back a little bit further than the Haymarket riots um, because the role that law enforcement in one, one form or another plays in the United States has always been one of oppression and protecting the rich and the political class and the ruling class from everybody else. Um, but there's a time where this country wasn't the United States yet and was trying to become the United States and law enforcement back then played a big, big role in trying to prevent that from happening. You mean law enforcement that happened to wear coats that were red colored? Yes, they were. Uh, they were the thin red line, back the red. Red yeah. lives matter. Yeah, red lives matter. Absolutely. Right, 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 right. Um, so, <laughs> and, and and there were people back then that you know said if you just follow the red coats rules, then nothing bad will happen. Right. And if you just peacefully petition the red coats to be nice while they're uh, you know living in your house because you were required to quarter them. <laughs> Um, That's the Third Amendment, folks. Third Amendment. Look it up. <laughs> there were people. That's the amendment that I will die on a hill for. Not the Second Amendment. The Third Amendment. I like the Second, but Third's important too. Um, so th there were people in those times that said, "Hey, you know, we just have to follow the the British's rules because you know they're they're the British. They're the they're the government. We have to follow the law and be good citizens." And the name for those people was, hmm, let me think. What was it? Loyalist. Loyalist, yeah. Loyalist because of their loyalty to the British crown and those who uphold uh, the law of the British crown. They also had a, a few euphemisms for themselves. They like to call themselves king's men and my personal favorite, friends of government. Friends of government. I like that. I am uh, not one of those. No, no, um, definitely me neither. And no. so the reason the reason that I, I, I so politely interrupted you to, to jump in with the whole red coat thing, and hopefully that was at least in a direction you wanted to go, there are people nowadays who like to fly a certain yellow flag with a snake on it, but also fly the thin blue line flag. Um, there are also a lot of folks out there who claim to be uh, patriots, but as a very central core of their ideology are pro-law enforcement, which is very interesting because if you take the same attitudes that person has now and dump them back in the 1770s, there's a pretty heavy chance they would have told George Washington and the rest of them, go home, just just obey <laughs> just, the law. Disperse, obey law yeah. enforcement, it's fine. The Redcoats wouldn't yeah. oppress you if you weren't agitating for uh, checks, notes, freedom. Right. Um, <laughs> so, do you think it's possible that perhaps people nowadays are agitating for, I don't know, freedom and better conditions, and the modern-day Redcoats are doing what the, they've always done? Right. And there are people nowadays that are saying, we have to support them, because in every era, there are people that, how do I put this politely, don't get it. Yeah, no. Uh, I actually wanted, I brought up the uh, Redcoats as an example. I was reading a, an interesting book about the local organizing that happened in New London County, prior to uh, Lexington and Concord to prepare for the uh, American Famous Revolution. peaceful protest, right, Lexington right, very and Concord. Peaceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a peaceful protest that got us everything we have today. Right, all the flags everywhere, yes. independence, etc. Fourth uh, of July, all that fun shit. Yes. Um, but I was reading the story of an interesting local who I immediately realized would absolutely be a big fan of the Thin Blue Lives guys. And his name was Ebenezer Punderson. Yes, yes. Ebenezer Punderson, it's is a name I love. He was the son of a Yale of a congregational preacher whose name was also Ebenezer Punderson. It's a great name. Pass it's, it down. Uh, but he wasn't junior or the second. It was just Ebenezer Punderson. That he, makes uh, record keeping easy. <laughs> he went to Yale, uh, graduated from Yale, bounced around Connecticut doing a whole bunch of different stuff, you know, idle rich kid stuff, yeah, farming. Man. I'm running are, are they open? Probably not. 
don't know, you can go check. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go check. If they're not open, I'm gonna run down the well up the street to get a ginger ale. Does anyone want anything? A root beer would be great. A root beer, do you want anything? I'm all set, thank you. So yeah, like we said, we are at the monthly giveaway, so people do sometimes come up and talk to Mark us. Either one. And so Ebenezer Punderson is a great name, and I love that he wasn't junior, so record keeping is much easier, <laughs> and determining who is who is much easier because he, he could always blame his dad. It's with fine. with most fathers and sons, their lives did overlap at least a little bit. Right, right. So he uh, he bounced around Connecticut for a while. He tried his hand at agriculture, didn't work. Teaching that didn't work. Same. Small time merchant that didn't work. Same. Uh, but for whatever reason, he was a big, big fan of King George and the Redcoats, the Empire, and Lord North, the Prime Minister at the time. Just the whole fucking thing. Back the back the red, etc. Back the red. Right, right. Yeah. So he he uh, unfortunately was not very smart. So we had a habit of haranguing people in the street because this is a time where boycotts of tea were going on and various other non-violent direct action was going on. Yeah, which is a thing you can look into, non-violent right. direct action. It's not the same thing as holding signs. Right, right, no. Uh, you can actually do useful things and also be non-violent. For example, uh, I'm a medic. That's non-violent direct action. Right. Uh, but the, this guy was running around going, oh, you can't legally boycott British goods. We need to stand with the king and stand with law enforcement and blah, blah. So he got, uh, he ran into what was then known as the Committee of Inspection in Norwich, which was a polite term for your neighbors will gather in a mob and ask you questions about why you're harating them and supporting King George. Uh, and he couldn't really answer those questions. So he uh, got run out of town. Interesting. So he went down the river to Stonington and uh, the same thing happened there make a long story short go figure so he went back to norwich and the same thing happened again uh -huh. so he decided all right by now it's like 1776 clearly i'm not a patriot uh i need to go to new york city where all the british generals in the army are and they can keep me safe right so he decided to go to colchester to try to sneak his way to new york which is a, a place in Connecticut for anyone not from our area. Right, I apologize. Yes, it's in the middle of the woods. Yeah, basically mid-Connecticut. Yeah, like, yeah, if you were to pick woods. a place in the center of Connecticut, it's right it's there. It's kind of like Colchester. Yeah, yeah. So he goes over there, and as soon as he comes to town, by his own account that he very conveniently wrote, so it may or may not be true, but 400 people, according to him, were gathered in a crowd with muskets, sort of casually held, but clearly aimed, like, aimed near him. Because uh, okay. that's the best you can do with a musket anyway. That's uh, true. But they wanted to be like, hey, uh, we heard there was a guy named Ebenezer, and he's a big King George fan, and uh, we just wanted to know what his business is in our town. And uh, he couldn't answer that. So he was like, all right, then I'm, I'm out. Uh, so he went back to Norwich, and then he ended up getting into a rowboat in Norwich in the harbor at, like, midnight and rowing his way down our local river all the way out to Long Island Sound where he sort of snuck onto a British warship and lived out the rest of his life in Britain. Uh, interestingly, he was uh, explicitly banned from ever returning to Norwich or Stonington or Colchester on pain of death. Same. <laughs> Same. Um, interesting story. I would... I I would think that it sort of reminds me of something we see nowadays. It almost sounds a little bit like anti-fascist deplatforming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they would not get, let him uh, speak his mind, and they were harassing his free speech. And, uh, yeah, all of the uh, patriots with the 13-striped uh, flags and the George Washington were all the dirty commies, I guess. So, yeah, so you're saying the, that the patriots, the people that we, um, we really idolize, the people that, uh, you know, went to war with law enforcement of the day and founded their own country 
these people uh terrible 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 because because they deplatformed this guy who was uh trying to make life easier for the king and stand up for empire right all they all everyone had to do was just shut up know your place obey your rulers vote don't forget to vote wait no colonists didn't have the vote yeah don't agitate for the vote right just don't vote everything will be fine yeah it's uh it's interesting how history goes which sort of brings up another random side note uh I love when right-wingers bring up George Orwell, you know. The, oh, that's always great. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. anti-fascist mili- militant who, <laughs> who, homage, homage who, to great who fought to establish a, an anarchist-ish communist, um, an anarcho-communist autonomous zone in, what, central Spain somewhere? I think it's somewhere a, like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know Spanish geography, you know, so yell at me for that. Um, so <laughs> we talk about, you know, how much we hate what's happening in... Um, in in Washington, but like, hey, Orwell, who literally went to armed armed warfare to help establish this autonomous zone, that guy's all right. <laughs> you know, I'll just not examine the fact that maybe if I empathize with this person, I might actually empathize with other resistors if I actually listen to other resistors. Yeah, uh, maybe all, all the people reading, uh, you know, 1984 and Animal Farm in high school tend to forget that Orwell was basically an anarchist like he was pretty libertarian and very very far left and clearly an anti-fascist uh he writes in uh Maja catalonia early on in the book he says well i basically realized that this was my chance to go kill some fascists so that's what i did uh, yeah <laughs> i mean so <laughs> you know the greatest generation had a similar thought right 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 <laughs> this whole world war ii thing you know um yeah look, getting a bit off the rails here but boy it's a lot of history you can get into, and uh, it's real fun to explore. So, so this whole beginning of the country thing, you might say that in its own way, the Declaration of Independence was in and of itself a, a peaceful protest in, in, in such, such a sense that they wrote this. They basically said, hey, England, we're not part of you anymore. We have dissolved all of our ties. And England... Uh, said, okay, well, you've just established what might be considered an autonomous zone, and so we're going to send the troops in. You know, the thing yeah, the yeah. thing that a lot of people on the right are calling for today. Right, right. Because we're going to send in the troops and uh, reestablish order and authority. Order, and yeah. yeah. Um, Keep in mind, though, before the Declaration of Independence, there's this other document folks tend to, tend to overlook called, for a reason, called the Olive Branch Petition. Uh-huh. And it's not a declaration. That's already not very strong. It's a petition. And so what the Continental Congress did was they wrote up a very nice letter on official letterhead and sent it to King George personally that said, hey, listen, here's some thoughts about how we could work this out peacefully and, you know, everything will be fine and we still love the king. And by the time he actually got the letter, he had already sent troops to America. So- <laughs> yeah. So, so. <laughs> this brings up a really important uh, sort of side example about nonviolent protest versus diverse tactics, which do include defensive and offensive violence. So the the colonists were like, hey, we're going to separate from England. We are we are separate now. And England says, well, <laughs> here come the redcoats. So the, the colonists were posed with a dilemma. Do we get crushed and hanged or do we pick up arms and defend our new liberated territory? And this is something that a lot of people get a hard lesson in, usually a couple times in a generation, because for some reason, government-funded schools tell us the only way to get the government to make concessions is through strict 
and dogmatic nonviolence. So they decided, hey, we're going to take up arms and defend ourselves, and that's why our country doesn't fly the Union Jack, because of guns. <laughs> and now let's bring it to some modern examples, fairly similar modern examples, mind you. So as we all know, or most of us know, the natives on this whole continent didn't really get a great treatment for basically ever. ever. <laughs> um, and we've been sort of ramming projects down their throat on their land for a long time. And typically we've said, hey, if you say no, we're just going to shoot you or throw you in jail. And for a, a long time, that largely worked. Bring yourself up to 1990, up in so-called Canada, some members of the Mohawk tribe had a sacred area of forest that had graves in it. They played lacrosse there, did all sorts of ceremonies there. And the township of Oka said, actually, I want to put a golf course there and you, uh, you know, people can just move. And the natives said, well, actually, no, we're not <laughs> going to do that. Uh, and what happened were native warriors picking up what were mostly SKSs and AK-47s and said, we're forming a blockade here and you are not coming in. And the uh, Canadian government said, okay, bet, and brought, in, <laughs> and brought in the police, at which point a firefight ensued and the Mohawks refused to leave and the police withdrew, at which point some construction equipment that was abandoned by the construction workers trying to bulldoze the forest were seized and there's beautiful footage and I will say beautiful very del deliberately because I think any instance of anti-authoritarian gains and victories is a beautiful thing Agreed. and I'm sorry if that offends your feelings it's it might but hear me out facts over feelings facts over feelings <laughs> the Mohawks took over one of those uh bulldozers and crushed flat several of the abandoned police cars and crushed them into a barricade on the street at which point they took up arms and said you are really not coming in we actually mean it and so do our rifles and so the canadian army comes in because of course <laughs> no government's about to, <laughs> to just back off on armed resistance like that they're not going to say oh okay so they bring in the army, and what happened was like a 90-something day armed standoff, at which point there was resistance and solidarity all over the country, and they, the Canadian government had what was looking like a rebellion on their hands, and they said, ooh, <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, that forest is still there, and that golf course is not there and was never built. What also followed as a, as a fun side note to this other side note is Canada started passing gun control laws all over the place. <laughs> Almost as if they understand what many liberals don't quite understand. You use guns to make the government do what you want them to do because otherwise they'll just laugh at you or ignore you for the most part. Any meaningful gains that you're pushing for that will undermine government power will be resisted by government force. And if you don't have a way to defend yourself, you're kind of out of luck. So speaking of, uh, speaking of civil rights, uh, I was thinking of a parallel example to what was going on in the U.S. civil rights movement among African Americans largely in the 60s. Uh, in Ireland at the time, especially in the occupied north, which by the way, still occupied by the British to this day, it's one of their last colonial holdouts, uh, Irish Catholics, like myself, uh, were starting to take notes about the effectiveness of the diversity of tactics in the civil rights movement in the U.S. And so they started holding marches and large signs and saying, we shall overcome, etc. And the British responded to this with uh, rubber bullets. 
yeah, you know, rubber bullets, the things police in the U.S. are firing at people. Those were invented in the occupied six counties in Ireland by the British. You mean those were invented to control an oppressed population through violence enacted by basically the cops? Yes. So cool. if I, for example, am ever uh, horribly wounded by rubber bullets fired by Sergeant O'Flynn of Bump Police Department, uh, that'll be well in keeping with uh, Irish tradition and history. Absolutely. Gotta love tradition. Uh -huh. So the, the contrast to the Oka crisis of 1990 is Standing Rock, a massive, overwhelmingly dogmatically nonviolent peaceful protest movement that had enormous public support. But they had a dogmatically nonviolent and peaceful, they called it peaceful and prayerful strategy. And you can adorn that any way you like, but the, the fundamental idea behind their strategy is in, if enough oppressed people get brutalized on public TV, then maybe the American government, which has been, you know, complicit or directly enacting brutalizing tactics on the natives for centuries, will suddenly just say, oh, <laughs> we didn't realize you were people. Oh, you bleed red just like us. Oh, cool. So we'll just not, you know, enact state violence on you anymore. Right. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, after many, many, many months of extremely downward pressure uh, of, from the leadership saying, do not do anything violent, do not do any sort of destruction, do not do any sort of sabotage, we're going to sit here and pray for mercy. Uh, that mercy did not come. Uh, I had the, the <laughs> I could say, fortune or misfortune of being out there the same weeks that the veterans were out there. This is December of 2016. I think it was yeah, because he took office in early 2017. Anyway, December 2016, I'm out there freezing my butt off at Standing Rock. It's minus 30, real cold. I'm sitting around the sacred fire, feeling a bit frustrated at, at just the overwhelming uh, domination of liberal tactics and thinking happening here, and thinking this movement will not succeed. At which point, some of the, uh, the natives that were not in leadership positions that, I don't know, maybe knew some history, said, you know what, we're taking the bridge. If you look at Standing Rock, there's, there's a bridge that the natives were pushed back beyond, and they had a big uh, police barricade there with all sorts of armored vehicles, LRADs. It's a, a LRAD is a, a long-range acoustic device. It's basically a, a sound cannon that blows out your ears and messes up your organs if they turn it up high enough. So all of these vehicles had retreated because of the extreme nature of this blizzard, and a bunch of guys had filled pickup trucks full of the sort of uh, blue plastic oil drums that you'll see. Uh, just all over the place. They'd cut them in half to make shields out of them that would be resistant to these rubber bullets, you know, the things that are used to keep down oppressed people used by police. And we had a column of people that we had, had got ourselves ready to go. I had my gas mask on. I had all my protective gear on. I ran to my wife's tent where she was sleeping and said, honey, get the bulletproof vest on. We're going. And so she gets on all her gear and we're marching on this bridge and there is no one protecting it. And we get almost to the checkpoint, at which point we're headed off by members of our own team, or so they said, to do this large uh, ceremony that took uh, conveniently exactly the same amount of time it took for the police to notice we were there and reestablish their barricade, at which point we had to stand out in the snow for about two hours, all of us getting soaked to the bone. And then we were told to head back to camp. And anyone that was not going to head back to camp was uh, thoroughly guilted, called a bad ally, called a agent provocateur, all sorts of liberal peace police tactics that are used to make sure a movement never makes gains. And this is very similar to a protest that I went to in 2014. 
you folks might think that I'm a huge fan of Obama because I'm on the left. Well, you, I would suggest that probably you haven't heard enough from the left to think that we're pro-Obama. Um, I marched in 2014 in a, in a protest called Operation American Spring that billed itself online as being extremely militant. We're talking put the trucks in D.C., slash the tires, blockade everything, barricade sections of the city, and demand Obama and his whole cabinet resign. Now, I was there for slightly different reasons than most of the Tea Party folks that were there, uh, obviously. Just want to interrupt real quick and sure. say, uh, really missed the Tea Party. I was around in high school when it first took off. I remember when people who waved Don't Tread on Me flags actually used to say, fuck the government, I love freedom, blah, blah, blah. I really wish they hadn't traded those in for those Blue Lives Matter flags, uh, for the most part. Yeah. I missed the Tea Party. I don't know where, where you folks are at, but... Uh, some really of them, <laughs> some of them were really cool, um, and then Trump got elected, and suddenly they're all about the right, government. Right, right, right. It's, Government's great now, folks. Yeah, that was strange to me and to a lot of other people, and so I was astonished to find out just how liberal these folks were and their tactics. And uh, me and a couple other people I came down with uh, were shocked to see that these uh, supposedly ready-to-go revolutionaries were stopped by a police barricade. <laughs> so. Me and a few other people hopped the barricades and ripped them down in front of a bunch of other people. And folks started to sort of, you know, cautiously make their way across through this barricade. And they're like, oh, are you sure we can do this? I'm like, what are you here for? What are you doing? Do you know anything about history? (laughs) And so we do this two or three times. And and there's a couple more people every time pulling down barricades and and people are, are, are going through the perimeters we're not supposed to go through. And then we get up to the back steps of the Capitol and we are met by a bunch of militiamen who were supposedly part of our protest and blocked us from hopping that last barricade and going face to face with the Capitol Hill police who had a whole bunch of AR-15s and body armor. And at this point in my life, I was like, I don't care. I'll face these guys down. And our own people stopped us because they were saying we can't do anything like this because public opinion will not Uh, be in our favor. And I tried to explain them. This is how movements die. If you don't do something right now, this movement will peter out and will be just like a thousand other ones that use pointless tactics and virtue signaling and accomplished nothing. And that is exactly what happened. Within a week, everyone that had come down to DC for for this big protest had left and nothing came of it. This same thing happens every time. Left protest, right protest, I don't care. This idea that the only way you can get things to happen is to peacefully petition the government to care about you is just idiotic. It's completely ahistorical and there's no reason to believe in it. But still these myths persist because they are taught in government funded schools. Go figure. Weird. Weird how that happens. Any comments to my ranting? I know I've ranted a lot more more than I thought I would. I was was, uh, picking up on the part where you mentioned the uh, the militias. I imagine some of them were wearing the three percenter patch. Is that right? This was a little before that became more common, but yeah, a, a few of them may have had that. I didn't so, see any thin blue line patches. <laughs> oh, thank God. Uh, this uh, is a little but, early for that. But the uh, the three percenter uh, symbol is supposed to signify that only three percent of Americans actively took up arms against the British during the whole revolution thing I'd already talked about earlier. Uh, so they didn't give a they the people who fought redcoats did not give a fuck about public opinion. Public opinion to them was whatever the neighborhood decided it was. And remember, if you liked King George, you would best keep your 
mouth shut about it for five minutes otherwise you, you know bad things would happen to you yeah you know <laughs> we went from that to we to these supposed militia anti-government guys going we need to side with the capitol hill police and defend obama that's what i the tea party militia guy have to say i'm out here protecting obama I, yeah <laughs> yeah that was really really strange um i'm hearing it now and i'm like what yeah, I was absolutely astonished, and they uh, they would not let anyone through, and so the protest dissipated and the movement died because people who either don't know history whatsoever or are deliberately acting in such a way to reinforce government power are hampering movements, and it's one of the reasons I get so frustrated when I hear about movements being hijacked by the violent people. Typically, the, the uprisings are the first stage of these movements. It, people aren't just like, oh, let's all like get uh, peaceful and, oh, we're just going to jump in and, and start throwing rocks. It's usually the opposite. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now with this movement, where peaceful folks are co-opting a lot of the rebellions that were happening. And I worry about that because that's what happens when movements die. Right. You know, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which was overwhelmed, from what I can tell, overwhelmed by liberals and sort of tried to water down their message, eventually just said, oh, hey, we're the leaders of this movement. You know, I don't know who elected them, but they're saying, hey, our mission is accomplished. We should go home now and vote for Biden. Uh, <laughs> so that's a lot different than what was happening a couple weeks before. Liberals, as far as I can tell, have never set up an autonomous zone, but they sure as hell have killed a few. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can say that uh, before, long before I was serving as a, a street medic, that uh, I used to be involved in, uh, you know, I was a Bernie guy in 2016. I was, you know, a big on health policy, Medicare for all, blah, 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 blah. And uh, that doesn't work, folks. Um, I, I accomplished nothing uh, by pushing for Medicare for all. Uh, Bernie accomplished nothing. He accomplished nothing recently when he ran again. And uh, I'm just a big fan of direct action. I am not dogmatically nonviolent in the sense that like, oh, I don't think anybody should be engaging in violent direct action. No, of course not. Go wreck shit. that's fine. Uh, but as a medic, I have my own ethical concerns and I have my own role to play. That would be kind of confused if I started, you know, punching a cop. But if you want to go punch a cop, um, for legal purposes, that's a joke, of course. Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, and, and this is the whole diversity of tactics thing, there are positions for every type of activist and every type of person in a movement that is trying to push for something. Because if you use only one tactic, it's going to be very easy to crush. And honestly, that does include a violent tactic. If only a bunch of armed people show up and start fighting, the government's going to have a much easier time saying, hey, screw these people, we're just going to bulldoze them. But if there are folks that are more peaceful interspersed with that, direct repression becomes harder. And, you know, this is the kind of thing I like to think about, especially now with the current uprisings happening. Everyone sharing that photo of Martin Luther King in um, a bunch of suits with other people locked arms and saying, this is how you protest. This is how you get things done. Neglecting to show what happened literally five minutes after that photo was taken. Hint, it involves fire hoses, rubber bullets, police dogs and their teeth, and handcuffs. And if you are on, going to be totally and completely honest with yourself, step away from any preconceptions you might have. Do you think that if only Martin Luther King and only his tactics were being used, do you think that any or any of the major gains that were achieved by the civil rights movement, which by the way, is far from complete, do you think any of those would have happened if it was only King? Honestly, 
Or do you think maybe they were scared of folks like Malcolm X and the associated more militant movements? They said, oh, we see a rebellion coming and we got to find the absolute most moderate person we can and, and negotiate with him so less people are motivated to join a rebellion. That's usually what happens. Yeah, divide and conquer is what happens to colonized nations all over the world. It worked in India. It yes. It worked in Ireland. India is a worked, fantastic example. And it, and it worked for uh, African Americans in the United States. You only hear about Martin Luther King now because you only hear about the, the system, the way the system wants you to protest. You only hear about Gandhi and his protest because the system wants you to believe that Gandhi just sitting down and doing his nonviolent protest is what made Britain suddenly not suddenly care about the Indians they just killed four million of a couple years previously in a deliberate famine. I can uh, tell you... That was Churchill, by the way. Right. The, the, the statues they're toppling. He did more than just be drunk throughout the entirety of World War II while the actual British soldiers fought fascists. <laughs> yeah, uh, it must have been very confusing to be a... Uh... Yes. What? One moment. All right. You can keep talking if you want. Okay. So it must have been very confusing to be a uh, Indian or Irish soldier in World War II. Uh, the Irish Free State in the South uh, run out of Dublin was neutral in World War II. But uh, Churchill was a horrible person. He uh, was the head of the colonial office for a while. He was in charge of this thing called Gallipoli in World War I, which was basically D-Day if it was a cluster And uh, he invented a thing called the Black and Tans that there have been many rousing Irish songs written about by uh, the Dubliners and so on. Uh, but Churchill was all in all a monster. And uh, the only reason that the British Empire ever fell was not because of a reliance on dogmatic nonviolence, but because there was a mixture of nonviolent tactics, strikes, labor organizing, etc. And uh, all of that nonviolent action was backed up by organized, armed uh, gentlemen with guns. And uh, yeah. I just had to run off for a couple of minutes, and uh, whatever Doc said, <laughs> yes. I was explaining uh, Winston Churchill and diversity of tactics against the British Empire. Cool. Uh, fun note, I'm pretty sure it was Winston Churchill who was confronted by a woman suffragist in like a train station and horsewhipped. Yes, yes, it was him. <laughs> <laughs> so before you folks think about... Uh, condemning people for tearing down statues who, as far as you know, are good people, there may be more to the story. And, and as I've always said, you're allowed to feel however you want to feel about statues being torn down. I'm not going to tell you how to feel. I might tell you why I feel the way I feel about them. But there's more to the story than most people realize. And if you don't know the full story, then you can't really have an informed opinion on something. Yeah, uh, this is why in Germany in 1946, uh, when all these statues of Hitler and Himmler and all the Nazi were torn down, nobody knew who won World War II. It was like, nobody knew anything. Yeah. It's just, it, it's yeah. just gone, who knows? Who, who, knows? who did we fight in World War II? I, it's weird, I don't uh, know. Yeah, what is a swastika? I don't know. Yeah, I, weird. I I saw that giant swastika explode in like really cool footage from I, I assume it was Berlin, uh, and I've, I I don't know what a swastika is. Yep, uh, gone. Nobody, nobody knows what happened. Have, have erased history. And while we're while we're on the subject of statues coming down, a lot of folks on the right are freaking out about Ulysses S. Grant being torn down or or uh, attempted to be torn down. And if 
if all you know about Grant is that he fought on the Union side of the Civil War and he uh, championed a lot of, of, of black folks' rights after the Civil War, if that's all you know about him, then that seems crazy and ridiculous. He also did a couple of things to the Indians that most people aren't quite aware of. And so, again, you don't have to support people tearing down the Grant statue or opposing the Grant statue, but know that it's not just people tearing down everything. There are actually reasons that they oppose these people, even if you personally are not aware of them. Um, in fact, actually, I heard this story absolutely horrifying. These uh, these these uh, terrorists really were tearing down a statue of the leader. Oh my god! Of yes, really ripping down the statue of the leader and melting it down for bullets to shoot at law enforcement. Not our brave law enforcement. And, oh my god! And that that is that is horrifying and and uh, completely indefensible. And those were the patriots, and it was King George. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Our apologies <laughs> to your Republican listener. Uh, we're f***ing with you right now, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Go home and rethink some stuff. <laughs> we... I, I know who King George is. You probably know who King George is. Oh, a- absolutely. Anyone that's had a history class at least has a vague idea of who King George is. If not by name, they know the King of England. And yet, his statues aren't standing in America anymore. There used to be one right in New York City. There's a famous painting of it getting pulled down with ropes. Pretty sure that's the one they melted down for bullets. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so, when you see things like this happening today, you have to wonder, maybe these people have a reason for hauling things down. And you don't always have to agree with it, but maybe you can at least understand where they're coming from. Like, there's a a talk show host called Wayne Allen Root, who's on our our, 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 um, local radio station, and he was saying, I don't agree with Columbus being pulled down, but, like, I get it. And I feel like for most people, we're not even really there. Like, Columbus, a lot of people can kind of understand, but they might not understand l- more obscure figures or less mainstream controversial figures of why they're going after these things. And this brings up a really great thing to br- get back onto the subject that we attempted to cover in this, in this episode, which is, is the effectiveness of diverse tactics that include direct action, civil unrest, vandalism, uh, attacks on infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. We had a protest in downtown New London where where we have our organization based out of, and there's been a statue here that literally since its first day has been the source of conflict. Well, it was the source of conflict because in the, when, in the 1930s when it was put up, there was this crew called the Fascist League of North America. A literal fad. They wore black shirts. They <laughs> that, had fascist symbols. That's and, not us calling it no, that. No, that was so their literal it was, name. <laughs> it was the FLNA. That's a real organization. And they used to have offices on Shaw Street, which is a little over from where we are right now. And the fascists decided, well, we're proud Italians. We're going to go put up a Christopher Columbus statue. By the way, if you support this Christopher Columbus statue and you're mad that it's gone, uh, the FLNA, the actual fascists, would have absolutely agreed with you. Uh, so that says something. History is uh, cool. Right. Um, but the another Italian community that was over by Fort Trumbull, where we maintain a memorial orchard today, uh, they were all anarchists. And they were like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, fascists are marching in our neighborhood and putting up statues. And we're not going to have this. So they grabbed some baseball bats and marched not even a half mile down the road to where the statue was. And they had a fight with the fascists. Yeah. And, uh, later on, uh, one of the FLNA guys from New London was found uh, bloated, fa- floating face down in the Mystic River, a couple miles out at sea. And uh, nobody knew anything. Nobody knew how it happened. It's an unsolved mystery to this day. Yeah, this isn't a new fight about this statue. But this statue has been a source of protest and controversy 
for what almost a century almost now almost a century now yeah and one day during a protest movement, a couple of people decided, you know what, I'm going to jump up on this statue and spray paint the hell out of it. And again, you don't have to support that happening, but if we're going to be scholarly and honest about this, what happened a couple days later, that statue being taken down would not have happened if it hadn't been attacked. Oh, by the way, I would, uh, speaking of diversity of tactics, I'd also like to point out, because I was there, marked as a medic, um, I was detained by the pigs, of course, uh, for searching, even though uh, I was a medic. I didn't let them search my bag, um, so they let me go. But long story short, uh, I was with a crowd of about a thousand or so people, and we took one of the police substations. They were not there, and the, the community occupied it for a period of time, spray painted it, knocked some shit over. Uh, we didn't hold it, which to me is, is disappointing, but a thousand angry people drove the police out of our police substation that day. And that sends a message that voting never can. Nope. <laughs> and, and again, you don't have to support any of this, but you could at the very least do us the courtesy of understanding it. That statue was taken down days after it was spray painted. And that would have never happened, or at least no time in, in the near future, if folks hadn't gone out and attacked it. That's pretty hard to ignore. That is what we call a case study in tactics. Did this work? Yes. Did this work rapidly? Yes. Why did this work? Because people did something other than the way the system wants them to protest. You know, it, it reminds me of... <laughs> It reminds me of all the instances in history where folks have said, yeah, we're just going to go out and occupy something and good luck stopping us. And more often than not, they won. And again, I, since a lot of our audience, or we try to gear this show toward folks on the right, you might have some supportive feelings toward the Bundys. You might not. It, you know, People have their opinions of them. They armed and occupied a place and had conflict with law enforcement and all of them except one are free to this day like they got their charges dropped they used militant tactics and you leveraged you could say leverage their privilege as well and they're not in jail you know they're however around, yeah. plenty of people that have been swept up in the protests nowadays are in jail what does that tell you when I was out in California during the, uh, the broader Ferguson Rebellion back in t late 2014, the Mike Brown verdict had just been put out. And again, no matter how you feel about it, we all know a lot of people were really, really, really angry around that time, especially in a place called Oakland, California, which is the home of the Black Panthers, but also the place of the Oscar Grant killing. You can look that up. It's, it was very uh, heavily protested when it happened. And when Mike Brown happened, people felt like this was happening again. So they were very angry. And Oakland is very near Berkeley. And if you folks have been paying attention to scary Antifa news, you know that Berkeley is a scary Antifa place. Very scary. I, having lived there, it's very scary. Uh, not mostly just a bunch of hippies and liberals with a few anarchists <laughs> here and there. Anyway... Um, we had a massive black block and if, for, for folks new to the show black block is when you see folks dressed up all in black it's a street tactic invented in germany in the 1980s to give 
people within a protest anonymity so they could more effectively confront the state and their enemies without threat of consequences. And again, you can feel however you want to about that, but it works, so people do it. So uh, just to add a quick thought, uh, for folks who are, uh, you know, on the younger side like me and are massive nerds, if you grew up reading comics, like just off the top of my head, uh, Batman or Spider-Man, you should be able to understand the logic of wearing a mask if you're going to confront evil because uh, you don't want your family to get wrecked or whatever. Yeah. It should be easy to understand. It, there is there is a tactical rationale to it, and people oversimplify it as, oh, well, they're just a bunch of cowards. It's like, no, people have been doing activism for generations, and they've tried things out, and they've gone with things that work. And usually the same folks that are the ones masked up are the same folks that are doing militant action because, spoiler alert, they know what works. <laughs> So I'm out in Oakland and I'm, I'm sort of on the ground documenting what's happening during the Ferguson Rebellion sort of as an observer figuring out what's happening. And we had a huge amount of people that were protecting the more liberal demonstration dressed up in the black block style. These people had steel pipes, chains, hammers, uh, shovels, all kinds of stuff. And that would be very scary to, you know, the liberals that were there. However, they kept the police at bay. There were almost no arrests any night the black bloc was there. However, liberals do what liberals do, tried to co-opt the protests and take it over and turn it into sort of an electioneering type event rather than the uprising that it genuinely was. And they kicked out the black bloc. And what happened that night is me and hundreds of other people went to jail because we no longer had our protection against the violence of the government. Go figure. Weird. Like, when we didn't have the black block to protect us, the police cornered us into a small back parking lot and gleefully fired rubber bullets into the crowd at point-blank range. And mind you, rubber bullets are designed to be bounced off of the ground, not fired directly into people. Yeah, if you But fire, that's how they're used. If you fire rubber bullets directly into people, you may kill them. You may shatter their ribs. You may cause a collapsed lung. You may have... Uh, you may shatter a windpipe or fracture an orbit, cause brain trauma, etc., etc. So uh, we're, we're we're trapped in this in this area. All these people that were there, for the most part, were some liberals and some anarchists pretending to be liberals. Not a whole lot violent was happening. It was just a march where they're occupying the streets, and people were jumping over the fences to get into adjacent parking lots. And I remember seeing cops jump out from behind cars and hit people in the face with nightsticks. And I saw their bodies drop. And then I didn't, I didn't see the, the, the nightstick stop swinging. And, you know, so these people are being horribly brutalized for the crime of trying to escape being shot with rubber bullets. Yeah. If uh, people are shooting at you, uh, you're going to want to either shoot back at them or if you can't do that, get the out of there. So I spent the night in county jail with about a hundred other people and we were treating the wounded and I saw firsthand what, what rubber bullets can do to people. I saw what you could literally describe as full torso bruises from being shot point blank with a 40 millimeter projectile. And if you don't know what 40 millimeter is, go to go on a ruler and look it up. I can't convert it to the English system for you. I'm sorry. It's big enough. Mm-hmm. We used 40 millimeter uh, anti-aircraft <laughs> cannons in world war ii so if that gives you any idea of the type of thing they're firing at people it if whether or not the rubber or not doesn't quite matter um and these people learned a really painful lesson if you don't have diverse tactics and your movement isn't capable and willing to defend itself the state will crush you 
And if it doesn't have to crush you, it'll ignore you and you'll just dissipate, which is what happens in most protests. But if you start to disrupt the order that the police uphold, you will have violence done to you and you have to decide, are you going to defend yourself or are you going to be crushed? And a lot of people in this country are starting to understand that. And this was common knowledge back in the time of history where, where Doc likes to study. People said, oh yeah, we know what the cops are for because the cops are literally being founded yeah, right now this, this for a, this exact purpose. This isn't an abstract concept, they just murdered my neighbor kid. Like, Yeah. Violence and diverse tactics protests have a far better track record of scaring the system into getting off of its ass and doing something to appease people. And that's the whole thing. They're trying to appease people because they don't want to have to deal with an even greater mess of a rebellion on their hands. It's, and you can actually say it's a counterinsurgency strategy. They're trying to appease you so you'll go home. And some anarchists will say, don't go home. Just keep pushing and see how far you can go. In large degree, that's what happened in Hong Kong and also the Yellow Vest movement, movements that a ton of right-wingers support because despite the fact that they're using every weapon they can against police, including bow and arrows and Molotov cocktails. But people understand that when another country's police are attacking civilians that are trying to protest for a better way of life, they implicitly understand, oh yeah, I support the people fighting against the cops. But for some reason, this this thinking breaks because we assume that our police don't have the exact same logic and function because oh you know america is good and freedom and something something i mean do you honestly think that there aren't people in france and hong kong that are saying oh the police are just here to protect us why are you attacking them there are people that buy into this same nonsense all over the world there were loyalists in 1776 there are loyalists now there are loyalists here there are loyalists in hong kong People don't seem to be willing to step back from the preconceived notions and think, hmm, maybe I don't know all of the possibilities. Maybe I don't know the full story. And maybe my lack of understanding of the full story is intentional. And maybe my lack of understanding serves a purpose that is a purpose I wouldn't normally stand behind. You have to be willing to, to consider the, the idea that you don't have the full story and that's a problem. And your support for the side you support is probably because you don't have the full story. I have plenty of friends that are Republicans. I have plenty of friends that are right-wingers. And when I tell them about some of the stuff that we believe, they say, wait, really? You believe that too? I said, yeah, I do. I and because, I, I, yeah, honestly, I just mean it. Right, right. I, like, this is my problem with don't tread on me flags. And I'll constantly tell someone this if I see them flying one. I don't disrespect the don't tread on me flag. I just wish you meant it. I just wish you meant it. I remember a time when people who flew those flags did mean it. And you know what happened? They ended up defending Obama like you were just describing. Or they ended up defending cops. Or they ended up... They, they very quietly allowed the people who tread on them to continue to tread on them. And, and it begs the question, what would the people that designed and used that flag think of their behavior today? Oh, they'd run them out of town. Probably. <laughs> like, that, like that guy with e the name. Ebenezer Punderson. Ebenezer Punderson. <laughs> so, are you an Ebenezer Punderson? Uh, and ask yourself, if you are, do you mean to be? Because honestly, a lot of folks that I talk to that fit that description don't mean to be that way. So, if examine your behavior, examine the narratives, and examine the systems that you are upholding through your behavior and say, do I really want that? And you might say, well, I'm upholding the American dream. 
Oh, ask yourself, what does that mean? Is that even something that is a relevant concept today? Think about the people that founded this country and ask yourself, in the state that it's in right now, would they just say, oh, yeah, well, we got to support the president? Or would they alter and or abolish it, as the Declaration of Independence says? Yeah. It's literally in the Declaration, folks. It's, it's called the right of revolution. It is a philosophical concept that is all over the place and something we like to forget. And a lot of right-wing folks will say, oh, well, you know, if, if the government becomes tyrannical, then I'm going to rise up. Dude, where have you been? It's right. been tyrannical almost the entire time. And, and depending on what population you're from, it has been tyrannical the entire time. Where have you been? The, the time to resist is constant because this system is constantly going to be looking to undermine your autonomy, undermine your rights, undermine your ability to have a free and open life. The time to resist is all the time. There's not going to be some magic point where you say, oh, well, now's the time to resist because chances are by the time that it becomes that obvious to folks that are saying that, you won't be able to anymore. Right. Or the, the amount of people that could have fought with you are already all dead in camps and, or in prison. Right. Like, it's that old saying that everyone loves to reference. First, they came for the communists, then the socialists, then the trade unionists, blah, 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 blah. And then they came for me, but there was no one left to speak for me. That's, uh, that's the kind of thing that you should be mindful of. And that's the kind of thing that the guy that attacked an ICE facility out in Tacoma, Washington, wrote in his manifesto. It was basically, hey, don't tread on me, folks. The government is putting people in, in prisons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why yeah. don't you actually stand by the principles you claim to espouse? Why do you see what's happening now as okay when it seemingly, from my perspective, you know, speaking as this guy, clashes very heavily with the principles you espouse? What are you doing? Right. There have been uh, constant protests at ICE facilities by uh, groups like uh, Doctors for Camp Closure, or I believe it's Physicians for Camp Closure. It's one of those names. Uh, there have been nurses and doctors and EMTs and medics trying to deliver uh, flu vaccines and most recently uh, medical supplies and COVID testing kits to an ICE facility. And ICE sent out the riot cops and arrested a whole bunch of unarmed doctors. Beat the shit out of them, too. Yeah, I love beating up essential health workers. That's great. You uh, know, the people that we clap for. I love when cops beat them up. That's, that's great. That's uh, cool. I appreciate not only being called so essential, but being compared to the cops who are beating the out of me. That's great. I yeah, love I love when awesome. they lump first responders in with cops. That's fun. Um, and, and this, now that you bring up ICE, again, no matter how you feel about ICE, an agency that was formed in like, what, 2001 or something? I it has, it was like 2003. It hasn't been around forever. You can so, watch Law & Order episodes that don't mention ICE. Like, yeah, somehow we figured things out before then, so it, it stands to reason somehow we could figure something out after them. But again, that, that, that's a matter of opinion. No matter how you feel about them, Trump threatened on several occasions to have mass roundups and mass deportations and tried to push immigration policies that a lot of people opposed. Some of you may have supported that, but think about this. Those protests happened in airports. Those protests happened in courthouses and people shut down what was happening. And the difference between between that and a riot is a very fine difference because really what a riot is is whenever cops call it a riot. If people are, are refusing to leave, if people are refusing to be moved by authority, 
they can call it an unlawful assembly, and suddenly it has basically the same legal weight as a riot, even if it's completely nonviolent whatsoever. Yeah, if you and your coworkers strike and you refuse to leave where you are when the cops tell you to, they can go ahead and label that a riot. They've done that all through labor history, all the time. Literally, I already mentioned the Haymarket riot. Literally, since police were founded, they've right. done that. Exactly. The whole, the entire time, and haven't stopped. But so all of those mass protests, which were nonviolent, but were very confrontational and very direct in their targeting of infrastructure, they made sure that the those roundups didn't happen because they put so much pressure on the system that they actually made them back down. And so that that's the diversity of tactics thing. It's not always going to make sense to show up in black block with a bunch of Molotovs and start throwing them. That doesn't always make sense in every single context, nor does just an, just a barricade, just an occupation, because the police might attack it. You might have to have some way of defending yourself. But it's a mix of different tactics that have been refined for generations of people that have been resisting authority and knowing what works. You don't always have to be violent to get what you need from the state. But if the state attacks you, you're going to need to either have some form of defensive violence or, or be die. or die. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. So just keep in mind. And I'm really kind of simplifying this a little bit, but if somebody comes out when the state is attacking you and says that you don't have the right to defend yourself and you're being violent and how dare you, that person wants you dead. Or at least doesn't care if you are dead. That person is not your friend. Just so you understand this. You know, not a lot of people have heard of something called the Holy Week Uprising. So uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, you know, despite the fact that he was nonviolent, which should tell you something. Right. Um, <laughs> the system doesn't care at the end of the day if you're violent or nonviolent. If you're making any sort of difference, it'll kill you uh, or put you in jail for a long time, like all the Panthers and the Move people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of them are still in jail. Uh, so Martin Luther King was killed, and there were immense riots because of the sheer anger and heartbreak that was being experienced by the black community. Do you know what passed six days into that rioting? The Civil Rights Act? The Civil Rights Act of Yay. 1968! <laughs> like, we did it! We can go home now. It's fine. You know, it's, it's almost as if that massive uprising was the catalyst for a really big counterinsurgency <laughs> campaign which was the civil rights act of 1968 hey we passed the new civil rights act could you please stop burning the country down <laughs> and uh some might say unfortunately they said uh, yeah sure we'll stop burning the country down wasn't nixon president in 68 uh maybe maybe yeah something like that could have been nixon could have been johnson ah uh, yeah that's true doesn't matter <laughs> if richard nixon says hey could you stop doing the thing you should keep doing the thing and do it more could you please stop doing the thing henry Get the riot cops! <laughs> These damn hippies! Uh, yes, it is clear that uh, neither of us have heard Nixon talk in quite a long time, given that he is uh, quite dead. Um, yeah, I was not alive at the time. Nor was I. We could keep going pretty much all day on examples of direct action and uh, what you might call riots scaring the system into doing something. But you could also go just as long into dogmatically nonviolent, more liberal-oriented protests that did nothing. And that's, the, unfortunately, the vast majority of protests because most people have fallen into this propagandized narrative. And it's extremely unfortunate because it is vastly corrosive to our organizing. 
every time a new generation of people go through the public schools and start to get active in organizing, we have to start from square zero or even like negative five if you'd like to go that far and say the Unreal numbers, oh my God. Unreal numbers. The <laughs> tactics you have been taught are ineffective because the system wants you to use ineffective tactics so its power can remain unchallenged. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. Don't take strategic advice from your enemies, folks. It's a bad idea. Yeah, there's another great quote. The master's house can't be torn down with his own tools. Exactly. You know, I don't know. Maybe playing power's game by power's rules is a losing game, and you should do something else. And I'm not going to stop you from voting, but at, it's important to recognize that at the very best, all it can do is choose a weaker enemy to fight because you're going to have to be fighting the government in order to get anything that resembles progress. That's just how it is and always has been. Government itself is just an organized gang that you accept. Right. <laughs> and I would say that uh, as far as the folks who are still to this day telling me, a former Bernie guy, oh, well, I have to vote for, you know, whoever the Democratic candidate is. I think it's Biden. I haven't been paying much attention. Yeah, it's, it's Biden now. Okay. Uh, I forget that sometimes. He's forgettable. It might not uh, be Biden because maybe his brains will dribble out his nose. But Maybe. Uh, but in either case, I live in a solid blue state, uh, so it's going to go to the Democrat no matter what I do. So I have zero obligation to participate in the election, and uh, I'm not going to. You know, perhaps we could at some point get into uh, an episode on the Dem exit and never Biden movements, because that, I think, is, is fantastically interesting. Teaser for that. Basically, a lot of folks on the left are tired of getting the middle finger in their eye from the institutional Democrats who functionally, by definition, I know this will sound weird because a lot of you think the Democrats are communists. By definition, Democrats are a right-wing party, and by definition, they are in opposition to just about everything that the left espouses. They might have some social policies that might seem lefty and liberal, and, and, you know, it's a fashion statement. Basically, the Democratic Party is the Republican Party with rainbow flags. Yeah, uh, I uh, am pretty well acquainted with politics on the ground in Ireland, and I would say that the Democrats are more like the Fianna, Fianna Foyle Party, uh, which is just the other side of the Fine Gael Party. The distinction there is not one you need to care about or that I need to go into in great detail. They're basically the same party. They're the... We love the we love the British. We love Wall Street, and we don't want a United Ireland party. Yeah, they're basically the same. Yeah, it's raining right now, so we're gonna have to briefly cover up all of our clothes that we're giving away. So we'll get back to this in just a moment. I want to climb over these rooftops and over these fences and escape to the places none of these guys would go. There's nothing I want more To sleep under the night sky Hear the animals as they go about their lives Fill the fire warm my body Fill the mud under my toes But tonight this cell keeps me enclosed So we just uh, left off talking about how the Democratic Party is essentially the Republican Party with rainbow flags. And uh, what what that's getting at is it is a, a pretty big schism between what you are told by this system is 
you know, the far left Democrats and what people that are actually in the left are <laughs> about. And we've touched on this from time to time. We touched on it a little bit in the PragerU episode as well, but it it sort of helps you understand the protest ecosystem if you can recognize the differences between the actual left and the people that <laughs> everyone thinks are 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 the left you know whenever you have these big protests you have radicals and folks that are fighting the movement trying to actually go for a goal or a cause or assert some kind of a new narrative or understanding and then you have the politicians acting in a very opportunistic way saying hey how do we leverage this to get back in power and get get elected it's it's not the same fight that's being fought and one of those strategies has a great track record of winning and the other one really 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 does not um you know one of the the chief gripes among the critics of the democratic party will say their approach is basically to to find the most watered down candidate possible in order to appeal to the folks on the right and then when they get elected those positions get watered down even further in the name of compromise (laughs) and uh that's not effective for goal-oriented uh movements that's effective for getting your guy in power versus their guy that's that's not the same fight no uh and going back to you know what i know with the labor movement this is the main difference or one of the main differences between militant unions like mine the iww or uh, the AFL-CIO, for example. Uh, There's been a call recently to expel police unions from the AFL-CIO, and it's, for the most part, supported by rank-and-file AFL-CIO members. But the leadership of the AFL-CIO, which is a big, big donor and contributor to the Democratic Party, uh, has come out against that call to expel police unions. Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, even comparing police to employers and saying this in a positive light uh, as groups that unions are supposed to work with so that everybody, workers and not workers, can win and come out on top. Yeah, that's a take you could have, I suppose. Um, I just jumped back in because I had to cover the donations again. They got, uh, they got covered. Uh, it's, it's raining again, so I had to put a tarp over them. And uh, yeah, Doc brings up unionism because that's what Doc does. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cops and unions, that's an interesting thing that uh, a force designed to counter and directly repress unions has a union. And, yeah, and, uh, and that union is also, you know, in league with uh, other uh, AFL-CIO has a history that is a little different. Than... It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty liberal and uh, pa- honestly pathetic compared to more militant unions. Yeah, but I mean... <laughs> Such as mine. <laughs> I feel like even back in the day, though, the AFL-CIO was a little more, like, honest about it. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Like, now they're just like, yeah, the cops didn't, you know, brutalize us. There was a time where they were two separate unions, the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Right, right. And the CIO in the 1930s and 40s was the real militant union. Right, right. They shut down Detroit for a while. They They were fighting. But they're kind of like the male pufferfish, where the AFL was the female pufferfish. Once the pufferfish got together, the male just kind of withered and died. Yeah, there's some biology for you. But it, it sort of highlights 
what happens when, when liberals take over it and co-opt a movement. They, they, they defang the movement, it becomes less effective, it withers away to nothing, as many things do. It's, it's extremely frustrating. And every generation, like we talked about, we have to have these same debates with people who don't take, don't take the time to actually understand what we're trying to talk about. And it's, it's exhausting to have to explain to each generation of liberals what protest history they were never taught, what tactics work and don't work, because we have to start from the beginning every single time, which is one of the reasons it's so hard to get anything done. And when people that actually know what they're doing tear, tear up our system and actually get concessions in days that liberals didn't get in years. Decades even. Decades? I mean, to contrast a, a liberal versus a, a, a leftist, you know, leftists are out here fighting the police and liberals are, you know, electing the guy who wrote the crime bill. Right. So that might give you some idea of, of a different perspective uh, yeah, in you know, the whole the, situation. The, the dirty leftists are out here just right now uh, distributing food to people, and everybody's just kind of hanging out and eating and uh, having a good time. Yeah. It's, horrible. it's a horrible comedy. Yeah, us, us horrible leftist terrorists are out here giving out food and clothes and supplies and stuff to folks in need, or really just anyone that wanders by. We don't really ask for folks' homeless card in yeah, order to, yeah. to get stuff. But, I, yeah, um, I must need to renew mine. Thanks for reminding me. i got to go down to the office and renew it. Yeah. The homeless DMV. You know how right, right. They have their own DMV for all their fancy cars they get on welfare, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, that's a real thing. Oh, I love when we get so off track that I don't even really remember what we're talking about. Right. I, I enjoy that, and I'm sure our listeners are just like, what, what are these people <laughs> actually talking about? I thought this was... I thought this was a discussion on, on rioting and protest tactics. Every episode heading from now on, we'll just have an ellipsis, like three dots over it inside parentheses, and it'll just be about whatever. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Who needs coherence? It's fine. Yeah, I, well, there's, there's just so much to talk about on any subject, and there's so many side stories to provide further context and nuance to a discussion that it's... It's very difficult to have a real and thorough conversation without meandering over a thousand different random things to, to, to build a better and more coherent story. And, you know, maybe we built a better and more coherent story, but maybe not. It's, um, oh hell. I forgot what I was going to say. What do you have to throw in on this? Uh... I honestly am running running out of stuff to say. Same. Um, it is raining very hard. It is raining very hard. But, like, this is a conversation that, you know, me a little more than Doc are willing to have with just about anyone, where we can go back and forth and discuss tactics and, and protests and, and just how to get things done, how to extract concessions from power, because we have case studies for centuries to explain what does and doesn't work. And as I keep saying like a damn broken record, you don't have to like what people are doing in the streets. You don't have to support their goals, but you can acknowledge that their tactics work. So, you know, you say, oh, well, I don't like what these people are doing. They're doing what has proven repeatedly to be effective. So they're going to use effective tactics in pursuing their goals. You know, this isn't a moral argument we're making. This is a scholarly and technical and tactical argument this is the kind of thing we say when 
how do you gain concessions from power? Well, you make power scared. How do you make power scared? Well, you don't make power scared by holding signs and then going back to your everyday life. You don't make power scared by putting a hashtag resist on your car. That's not what it is. You know, you can't have activism be reduced to a fashion statement, which is largely what has happened, which is largely why the types of concessions and resistance that we see now <laughs> are useless. <laughs> I mean, think about the time where people were far more directly conflictual with the state and you can see an unbelievable amount of progress made and that has eroded over time because people have gradually gone more in line with the system and that's not helpful it's directly counterproductive toward the project of liberty i uh you know speaking as a union guy uh you know the folks who fought and died for the eight hour day and the two-day weekend and that died uh, like thousands of them literally (laughs) died uh I've worked in healthcare, and before that, I was working as a dishwasher, and I've never had a an, a full eight-hour day or a two-day weekend ever in my entire working life. And the and the generations that came after the folks who fought and died for my weekend uh, just gave up my weekend. Basically, they didn't care enough about their own weekends, or they were bought off, or they were cowards, or who knows what it was. They were maybe afraid to organize because they'd lose their job. Right, right. That too. <laughs> One of the primary intimidation tactics used to keep workers' rights down. Right. That's, the, a, that's also possible. The French have what? I think it's like a 24-hour work week or something. Something like it's, that. It's, 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 it's sealed, in the 20s. It's sealed by law. It's not like, oh, we have a 20-hour work week unless your boss doesn't feel like it. No. Yeah. And if your boss didn't feel like it in France, they just go to his office and tie him to a chair until he agrees. <laughs> and do you, right. So why do you think France has that level of labor protections? Why do you think plenty of other places have that, that level of labor protections? Because they're willing to fight for it and because they don't forget that what it takes to get concessions from power is fighting. It's struggle. Right? You know, I, I, I ask um, some of my folks that, that are on the right, like, do you think that the British would have just peacefully left Americans alone if they had peacefully said we're leaving. Well, Americans did say we're leaving and the British did not peacefully leave them alone. When I talk about autonomous zones around the world that I've lived in, I ask my friends on the right, like, do you think the cops just allowed people to peacefully secede? No, they didn't. The cops came in with unbelievable violence and brutalized the people that were trying to commit the crime of being free. It's terrible. And we see that happening now, you know, all, all across the country. And a lot of people are freaking out about this whole Chaz thing, buying into stories that a couple days later are walked back. People are reading Fox News and seeing the same guy with a rifle that's just standing there, photoshopped into 10 different articles. People are seeing headlines with, with you know, bu- businesses on fire from the... Well, wait, 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 <laughs> hold on. I thought Fox News was all about the Second Amendment, your right to carry firearms in public and facing off against the tyrannical government and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, except when the people with guns are left-wingers and the government is right-wing, apparently. Huh, huh, weird. So when you let them in power, suddenly they don't care about that anymore. Suddenly, when they're in power, resistance is becomes terrorism, huh, which is weird. weird. That's yeah. weird, yeah. I mean, it, and that's the same thing with just the, the institutional quality of, of it, really in either direction. You, you see just people saying this, these outrageously hypocritical things. Like, I see people talking about Trump and they're saying, you know, like, well, we never, we're never like this about Obama. Well, of course you were, and vice versa. Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, don't, it, don't forget, folks, for all the folks out there who are like, 
you know, Trump is just impolite and bad and Obama was such a great president. He literally bombed a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan. Among other things. Among other things. And weddings that's, and, that's, you know. And that's one of the things that sticks out in my head is he, he, his, the Air Force under his command, because he was commander-in-chief at the time, bombed a marked hospital twice. It bombed it the first time, and then the AC-130 that, you know, murdered all the patients and blew up a trauma ward, circled back around and did it again. And uh, when Doctors Without Borders was horrified and said, what, what is this? We're going to the United Nations. Obama basically said, no, 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 don't, that's fine. We don't need to do that. It's fine. It was a mistake, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. They're still litigating this to this day. Yeah, I love double tap strikes. Awesome. <laughs> you know? I hey. love the idea of being, you know, wrist deep in somebody, I'm um, patching up, and then suddenly I'm bombed. That's great. Yeah, and then when you go to treat the people that have survived, you get, I get bombed again. Bombed again. Awesome. It, you know, people might recognize the double ta double tap strike from, you know, Syria, right, right. Where, where Assad would bomb hospitals, and then as soon as emergency workers, you know, the white helmets that everyone says are terrorists, go in and, you know, take care of people, they hit them again because they want to kill a bunch of, of medics. Which, you know, it's a war crime, you might recognize it's a war crime. Yeah. So, the US, so my point here is between the police targeting medics at events across the United States and bombing doctors at Borders Hospital, the United States is a rogue regime. So I'm hoping that one day the United States will invade the United States to liberate the people of the United States from the United States. Yeah. I mean, people have tried that and then, <laughs> and then they go to jail. It's like, you know, all of our founding fathers today, you know, no matter how you feel about them, and there are critiques in every direction you can make about them, probably would be like, yeah, we're going to go to war over this. This is unacceptable. At the like, very least, because George Washington was growing a massive amount of hemp. Yeah. So there would be shootouts at uh, Mount Vernon, for sure. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's amazing that, that we idolize people who went in direct conflict with the state, and now call people that go into direct conflict with the state terrorists. You know, people always say you know like oh i wish i were alive during the civil rights era or like i wish i were alive during the civil war or whatever and like i wonder what i would do in those times well history is just today but yesterday like i mean <laughs> in a lot of ways that the dynamics and social contexts are pretty similar what you are doing today is quite likely a close relative of what you would be doing back then you know well that makes me feel better like <laughs> all you folks out there saying back the blue would probably be you know flying flags saying red lives matter back in the in the 1700s oh by the way for those folks uh just a quick revolutionary war lessons i've been reading up on this a bit more uh you if you were a loyalist in america and you joined you know his majesty's army blah 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 you didn't get a red coat uh you got a green coat you wore like this ugly lime green to dark green coat and were spat on by red coats as a traitor and treated as a second class subject uh, so nobody liked you. Yeah. Not the people you were sucking up to, and definitely not the community you were sucking, you were, you know, flipping off in the process. Yeah, I love when obedience gets people, uh, worse things. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's sort of like grand jury resistors when they say they re they're, they're going to refuse to testify and they, they, they go to prison for a while and get released and they go back to their friends and families not being a traitor. Right. And then there are the people that decide to snitch to the grand jury and snitch out their comrades. And, and get longer sentences. And usually end up with longer sentences. Right. And, and by the way... <laughs> and you, ostracized. But, and when you serve that longer sentence, you're serving that with a snitch thing in your rec like you go to jail everybody knows you're a snitch yeah they're gonna know <laughs> so the lesson here and i'm not i'm not our lawyer but this is a lesson here for your own health don't talk to cops just don't do it 
Yeah, and you know there are very long and and thorough things about why you shouldn't talk to the police because you know anything you can and say will be used in, against you in a court of law. But really, anything that you say can be weaponized against you. So it really behooves you in most cases to just not say anything. Folks, for those of you who uh, know me, uh, you know that I'm a very hot-headed and mouthy person with a temper. Yeah. But the one group of people I never mouth off to are the police. Which is... <laughs> and you know how hard it is for me not to mouth off to police? Or anyone? Or anyone. But I do not do that because it does not help the situation. I am not winning rhetorical points. I'm not owning them with facts and logic. They're cops. They're just dogs for the rich. That's what they are. I wouldn't, uh, frankly, that's not even fair to compare them to dogs. Dogs are loyal and useful to the community. Well, I mean, uh, they're loyal to the, their owners, the uh, that, uh, state, so I think fair. it's actually a pretty apt comparison. <laughs> All right, that's fair. But the point is, I would never mouth off the cops. It doesn't help or go anywhere. Yeah, because like most activists that have been in this for a while and study history, certain things are effective, certain things are not effective. It's the same thing with uh, medicine and nursing all through history. We do case studies so that when something weird like COVID-19 happens, we can know what's typical, what's not typical, what does or doesn't work. For example, washing your hands before you do wound care. It helps prevent infection. Go figure. Weird. It took hundreds of years for Europe to figure that one out. Weird. Yeah. So yeah, you know, Definitely, I would encourage people out there, as, as something in closing, to really take the time to get in the heads of the people that are doing this rioting, doing this resistance, doing this civil unrest, and ask yourself, is it really just paid agitate, agitators? Is it really just people who have no political understanding? Is it really just crazy people who want destruction? Or is it people doing what history has taught them is the most effective means at forcing change and pushing toward a world that they prefer. And that might not be a world you prefer, but it might it, it may be as well, because every person has different opinions. But for God's sake, at least have the decency and the intellectual honesty to explore these ideas and know them like you know your own ideas. Because if you don't do that, you're gonna just only have half the story and that's not gonna help anything. And it very well might put you on a side which you wouldn't normally be on the side of. You know. As I've taught people, uh, said, said many times on this podcast and with my radio appearances as well, I used to be a Republican, you know, not in the Irish sense, but in the American sense. And oh, don't worry, though, you're still doing good in the Irish sense by now. Don't worry. A lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my fundamental views haven't changed all that much. But what I've found is that the ideas that I have are more seriously engaged with by the libertarian left, like being against government, being against power structures, being against the people that uphold the rule of that government. You know, that, that type of stuff is very common among the right, but they don't often take the next step and say, well, who are the people that are upholding the government that I don't like? The who Jews? <laughs> but that happens with some Republicans, but that's a different podcast and that, so on. Well, so there, there are fringes that will scapegoat pretty much anyone, and often it's, it's not the people that are actually upholding the power structures that you claim to be skeptical of and, and i think it's, it's ridiculous that a lot of people ignore centuries worth of history of people oppressing huge uh, percentages of the population and just keep saying back the blue because it's easy we cling to these oversimplified narratives that are tremendously corrosive to our national dialogue and it's really 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 frustrating like i listen to the to right-wing radio all the time 
it's very interesting to get in the heads of these people and hear the stories they tell each other because even people that are, are you know, supposedly very heavily credentialed, like folks from the Heritage Foundation, which I'll hear on the radio all the time, will say things that are demonstrably false. And, and it's, you know, radio has its own limitations and what kind of back and forth you can have because there's always a, a time limit between, uh, between ad breaks, there's a schedule. There's only so much you can get into it, so I can't really blame them too much. But like when I hear people say like, oh, well, you know, peaceful protest is the only way to get things done, and this government was founded on, on peace. I'm like, how dare you say something so blatantly ridiculous and not have your head explode from right. just the sheer lunacy of what you're trying to say to tens of thousands of people listening and taking what you say as fact. It's grossly irresponsible. You know, it, it's really frustrating. And then I hear so many folks on the right, like we talked about earlier, talk about, oh, well, you know, George Orwell, blah, blah, blah. Like, do you have any idea who George Orwell was? Like, any idea at all? Or do you, or do you just embrace a really oversimplified narrative of who you think George Orwell was and repeat it to your friends and you're just sharing lies to each other without even realizing it in most cases? That's no way to have a real productive movement, dialogue, anything. It's, it's, it's silly. Yeah. You can't base your whole worldview off of lies and be surprised when people call you out for it. If you do base your whole worldview off of lies, uh, I will say that I'm probably going to end up hearing about, you know, this person listening, uh, because while my, while my friend and, and uh, co-founder here, uh, you know, does outreach to Republicans or to Republican talk radio and so on, I don't have the patience for that. I don't want to talk to those folks. I just, I'm just going to explode. So what I do is I tend to monitor far-right, neo-Nazi, racist, fascist media. Uh, those, you know, the Oklahoma City folks from the 90s, they're still around and they still produce podcasts and so on. Yeah. So I tend to do that to keep an eye on them and see what they're talking about and so on. Um, because prevention is worth a pound of cure, as they say, but I don't have the patience for the prevention work, so I'll just monitor them instead. <laughs> Well, you know, anti-fascism has many, many different angles to it, contrary to what the oversimplified narratives in media would, thought, would like I you thought, to believe. I thought the Antifas were busy wrecking windows and hurting our brave police officers. Yeah. And attacking innocent rogue Klansmen for some reason. And, and not doing what we're doing right now, which, right. <laughs> which is helping people in need. Uh, yeah. I, I went on the radio a, a few weeks ago to talk about just, you know, the, the anti-fascist tactics and all that kind of stuff. And I described myself at the beginning being like, hey, like, I, I'm a loving father. I'm a homesteader. Like, I'm a construction worker. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not paid by George Soros. I don't worship Satan. By the like, way, <laughs> uh, George Soros is a common euphemism for the Jews. It's just easier to say one rich Jewish billionaire than to say the Jews in public. But if someone is mentioning George Soros, they might mean the Jews, or they might not know that. But either way, it's a common euphemism in the fascist right for the Jews. Well, you know, th that's another thing that, that highlights the importance of language. You know, a lot of people out there will very willingly use the phrase cultural Marxism without actually knowing the history behind it, and in so doing being, you know, by default complacent in a narrative that they probably wouldn't support otherwise. By the way, folks, uh, because I, you know, do all this work now in the monitoring the far-right media, Cultural Marxism is just an English translation of a German word, cultural Bolshevismus, which was coined by a great guy, total, total great guy, named Josef Men Josef uh, Goebbels, sorry, not Mendel, Goebbels, 
the propaganda minister of Nazi Germany in his diaries, uh, the, which you can go read at any time. The same guy who said if you repeat a lie enough, it becomes the truth? Yes, that was, guy. Was that the yes, same guy? The yeah, same okay. Guy. He looks exactly like Stephen Miller. Yeah, that guy. Uh, cool. Um, <laughs> if you repeat a lie enough, it becomes the truth. And that's really what, what you know, a lot of what I'm trying that's to, what, to uh, work the, against. That's what B-17s uh, dropped on Germany, uh, the truth. Just They opened the doors and just dropped the truth. Yeah. All over Berlin. <laughs> until the Nazis gave up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really am trying my absolute best in most of my free time to counteract the false narratives that people operate under because uh, it, it is my belief that the vast majority of people out there are not Nazis. Are not Nazis and pretty decent people. Weird. Um, and they may be a party to a narrative and a project that they would otherwise be fervently against, but they haven't been told the full story. Well, I mean, if you're unoriginal and un if you're original and creative and a decent human being, you're not going to wind up on like, you know, an, a fascist podcast ranting about how Jews control the Black Lives Matter movement uh, because black people have no agency, but also somehow manage to do all of the crime. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm that, not clear about how that works, but yeah. I don't need to be. So. <laughs> we should definitely, before we wrap up on this, just touch on the whole outside agitator thing. I'm Jews. Or, or whatever. Like, it, it, it's a really old thing that, that people would, uh, would deploy on pretty much every protest. And what it does is delegitimize the people that are actually fighting with methods that are demonstrably effective. And it has a racist angle to it because a lot of folks, especially oppressed people that are fighting back with time-tested and effective methods, their genuine rage and their genuine tactics and their genuine fighting is completely made invisible by saying, oh, well, it's just outside agitators, as if these people aren't intellectually capable of adopting effective tactics. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah, the, and uh, a lot of people buy into it. The outside agitator narrative was common in the, in the pre-Civil War South when slave revolts and slave rebellions were kicking off. People would just go, oh, well, it's obviously just outside agitators because our good N-word would never rise up against them. Against yeah, the another thing you don't hear about in school much, slave rebellions. Oh yeah, have it all the time. And that might undermine the perception that uh, Kanye has about slavery being a choice. <laughs> That, that might undermine that. Just a little bit. You know, uh, the, I, I think they were called like the, the Gullah Wars or the Gullah Rebellions, uh, uh, slave revolts that yeah. like created autonomous zones of free people from the government. But that's okay because they were stopped <laughs> by patriots with uh, badges that were uh, slave patrol guys. Yeah. So and you know, because freedom or something. And, and, and you can look this up as well. There were a lot of autonomous zones that were carved out of the former CSA where people had interracial communities that were actually trying to move forward far beyond what the Union was at that point, and they were killed and crushed by the Union. Folks, if you haven't <laughs> seen the movie Free State of Jones, Antifa Central Command says that it's required viewing. Right. Uh, that's one of the things I, I was sort of gesturing to. Yeah, Free State of Jones. And <laughs> apparently, according to some historians, that one's a, a pretty decent representation. But, like, there were a lot of projects that you never hear about in government-funded schools for some reason <laughs> that were absolutely crushed by you know the the union side of, of the war because the union wasn't so much about creating freedom so much as they were keeping their country the size they wanted it to be right it was a conflict between rich plantation owners in the south and industrial capitalists in the north and who got to rule over the rest of us rich folks wars poor folks fight <laughs> exactly yeah 
Well, we're really rambling now, and uh, the event that's uh, coming after us is actually starting to set up, so we have to get our stuff out of their way. Back to and, the anti-fascist uh, terrorism. Back to the anti-fascist terrorism that is community aid and uh, being a decent person. Final note, I would say that uh, being an anti-fascist, I would think would be a default position. You would think uh, so, because if you're anti-anti-fascist, you're pro-fascist, because negatives cancel out in English grammar. You know, That's the, how that works. It is, it is interesting that, you know, we have this, this word anti-fa, which refers to a specific manifestation of, of an anti-fascist politics, but just the position of, of saying, I am anti-fascist, does not necessarily mean that you are part of the, uh, you know, like like an anarchist or leftist position, you might just not like fascism, which I would hope is the default in most situations, which is why generally I introduce myself as an anti-fascist, simply because that is a less loaded way of describing a position that like, yeah, I am against authoritarianism, which includes fascism. fascism. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I really thank folks for their patience and listening, and I hope this has uh, done a little bit to undermine the commonly upheld perceptions that the only way to make change happen is by peacefully petitioning the government to care about you, because history is, and the millions of dead people that tried that are laughing at you specifically. <laughs> so... Have a great day, folks, and please reach out to the show through the Facebook page at any time. I'm very easy to get a hold of. I am absolutely cell phone addicted, so uh, I will always re reply to people. And if you have anything you'd like us to go into on the show and sort of describe the leftist position on, be more than happy to do that. Um, so thank you so much, and I hope you folks have a great day. A bigger cage is still a prison Well, I hope that somewhere someone breaks free tonight